Welcome back to the Mixed Media Podcast. If you're hearing this message, it's been a while since we've uploaded to our podcasting platforms, and we're returning to our regular editing schedule. Many of these episodes have been recorded for a while now, but we finally have them ready for you to listen to. If you've been missing the show, we are always posting our entire raw live streams on YouTube, Twitch, and Rumble. And you can go to mixedmediapodcast.com to find links to those as well as our Discord if you want to keep tabs on the Mixed Media Podcast project. Thank you so much for your patience and enjoy the show. Mixed Media Music. All right. Welcome to Mixed Media Music, uh, the segment of the Mixed Media Podcast where I talk about all things uh, related to music, you know, film music in particular, but music in, as a, is a broader phenomenon. Um, and before we get started, let me introduce myself and have my co-hosts introduce themselves. So I am Ben Costello. I am a flute player and a media composer. And I'm Irving Nestor. I'm a filmmaker and a media entrepreneur. I'm Nathan Nestor. I'm a game developer and 3D modeler. Okay, so... On today's episode of Mixed Media Music, uh, I'm going to be discussing uh, and kind of analyzing the way music works in two scenes from two films. Um, and this this topic, uh, the idea for this topic came about uh, during last week's uh, Mixed Media Music episode. We are interviewing, um, I can't, I'm not thinking, of, can't think of the guy's name. So I'm drawing a blank, but we're interviewing a uh, a composer, uh, you know, video game composer, and I don't exact, I don't remember exactly how um, how this came up, but I, I said it's somewhere in there that I, I wanted to talk about the way the music worked in these two scenes. Um, so yeah, here we are. So we're going to be looking at um, a scene from The Empire Strikes Back and a scene from a very very different film, uh, be 2013. Uh, the Great Gatsby, and uh, I, I might kind of give us a, a subtitle of being drawn into and being drawn out of a scene. Um, now, first, before we even look at the scenes themselves, um, what, what's the similarity here? Because these are very, very different films and very, very different film music. Um, so, the main thing that, that I, I these, these are, I think the reason I thought of these two scenes, and they do, they do very different things musically too, but the reason I thought of these two scenes um, is because, to me, in both of them, the music kind of makes the scene, um, for better or worse. Okay. Um, and if there, these are scenes where, like, I think you, you kind of have to notice the music. And if the music is, it's one of those things where the music is not there and doesn't, happen at exactly the right time um you know and it, it it does the scenes don't work they kind of are predicated on uh both scenes glances at people you know you know they're like people looking at each other uh, without saying anything or like a full you know frontal shot uh of someone's face and w with music so and these are just two scenes that kind of always stood out to me for what what's happening in them. Now, again, they do completely completely different things, um, but the music is what makes the scene work for better or for worse. Okay. Now, with the disclaimer, of course, that 
well, one, this on on pure audio format, right? I can never like really truly break down a scene, right? Because you can't see it, you can't see anything. Um, and also, even if you're watching this live, I can't really do that because of copyright reasons. So I'm gonna have to settle for describing the scene and the music. But hopefully, I have a really long list here uh, of of you know how I want to describe describe what I'm the music and and the action. So you know hopefully I, I I'll do my best. Also, spoiler uh, warning, I suppose if you've somehow uh, you know if you've never seen The Empire Strikes Back or if you've never seen or read the The Great Gatsby and you don't want anything spoiled, I guess you might want to skip this episode. Um, so, you know, she should say that, but I don't think anything <laughs> here is too, too crazy, you know, not, you know, but just, just in case, you know, you don't want, you don't want any of those the movies or, or book ruined. All right. So we'll start with the Empire Strikes Back. And uh, we're going to talk about the scene um, where Han is frozen in carbonite by, by Darth Vader. Okay. So if you are familiar with the film, you probably have a very vague, you know, general idea of what this scene looks like, unless you're a huge Star Wars fan and you know, like every line in this scene. Um, okay, so let's let's just kind of I'm just gonna walk through this scene and and what happens and what happens with the music. Um, and I have said for a very long time, I, I find this scene for me is kind of um, it's like the masterclass in how to score a scene. In some ways, again, it's a scene where, like, if you remove the music, you're basically just getting a whole bunch of people looking at each other, which is kind of odd for Star Wars. It's a pretty, pretty, like, you know, non-action-based and non-dialogue-driven scene. And it's just mostly just a lot of camera angles and you know, framing and looking people looking at each other. Um, kind of unusual for Star Wars. So without the music, the scene is kind of silly. Um, so, okay, so the scene starts, um, we have Vader is going to freeze Han and Carbonite, and, uh, our heroes, minus Luke, are, you know, they're in captivity, they're being led up to this place where Carbonite freezing takes place in Cloud City. Um, okay, so the scene starts with them being kind of led in this kind of, uh, you know, prisoner, uh, procession, um, and what we get in musically is we kind of have this uh, really almost somber um, and kind of dragging uh, version of the Imperial March. And now Empire is the first film that has the Imperial March. Uh, it doesn't happen in episode four, A New Hope. Um, so we've heard at this point probably 50 times in the film, but only in really massive you know, orchestration and you know, the way we kind of think of it when, when you think of the Imperial March. Um, you know, like a massive, uh, very like intense and intimidating. Um, this is the first time we get a very different version of it. Um, like I said, it's kind of dragging in terms of its tempo. The rhythms are slightly different. Um, it's just in the horns playing it, not the full orchestra. Um, and so to me, that's, that's interesting, right? We, ha- we, we don't see Vader first. Um, but right, we we see them being led in by the stormtroopers. So we have, um, you know, the the power of the empire, but it's not an overbearing thing. Like we we right, we're, we're music is communicating to us um, that 
right? The, the empire is is in control here, but it's, we're also getting the the feeling of our our heroes, right? They're they're dejected, right? They they know they're being dragged up to uh, something something terrible. They don't even know exactly what's what's going to happen. Okay, um, so not like the brute force of the empire. It's the empire is present, but but we're feeling uh, what the characters are feeling. Um, so the next kind of moment that we get, um, we get Vader, we get this kind of interesting shot. Uh, well, first we get a few lines of dialogue between Vader and Boba Fett, um, you know, saying, you were, I'm going to freeze him in carbonite, and, you know, I want him alive, he means a lot to me alive, whatever. Um, and then we get, we get this shot where we have the dialogue continuing, but we have in the frame, in the background, we see Fett and Vader talking, and in the foreground, we have uh, mirrored uh, um, Han and Leia looking at each other. Um, and uh, right, and the moment we get uh, Fett saying that, you know, like we get this hint that, you know, he, he might not survive this being frozen in carbonite, and we get that's when we get the look, and we get uh, the Han and, Han and Leia's love theme. Okay, so again, if we remove the music, you know, it's it's a cool shot, but it's the music that's telling us what is happening in in that look and communicating like the the threat of death for Han and what what is being communicated in the look between these two characters. Um, okay, so then we get a little bit. Of, so Vader announces what's going to happen. Chewbacca starts throwing stormtroopers around, and um, Han tries to calm him down. So that gets kind of some agitated music. That's not terribly important. Um, but as you know, Han calms Chewbacca down and kind of resigns. Like you know, there's no point in fighting here, right? Um, we get Leia shooting a a glance at Vader, uh, and again we get. The uh, Imperial March, not again, not in, in like the math, most massive form of it, but in uh, you know the normal tempo um, and and rhythm. So again, w- you know, we get we get uh, the music is communicating what is occurring in that glance, you know, uh, uh, between Leia and Vader. Um, then the next kind of significant thing, right? We get. Um, in a really long look between Leia and Han, uh, and they kiss each other without saying any words. So love theme, right? At, between, between as they're looking at each other and as they kiss each other, um, and then we get kind of the famous line where Leia says, "I love you," and Han says, "I know," as he's being led to the place where he's going to be frozen. Um, and at that moment, that's where we get the love theme now changed orchestration. Uh, we go up in key, and the, pretty much the entire orchestra plays it, so you know, we kind of increase the um, the, the emotion, right, uh, of, of our love theme. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, then we, we get kind of some kind of ominous music um, as the actual freezing occurs. And then we kind of actually get a lot of music actually cuts out and we get just a lot of sound, um, you know, sound, like sound design, I suppose. Um, we kind of get music again as we see them um, get the shot underneath. We're looking at this kind of like uh, almost like a, um, 
like one of those arcade games, like the claw, right? You pick up your, uh, you try to pick up your prize. You kind of get an under, uh, you know, shot looking up as this claw comes down to pick up the frozen uh, Han. And um, that is when we get the full uh, statement of the Imperial March and the, you know, the, all of its glory that we have heard throughout the film up until uh, th- this moment. Okay, so um, again, again, music kind of cuts out briefly for sound effects. Uh, we, we pull him up, and before we even see you know, him, uh, the workers throw the slab that he has become, slam it on the ground. At the moment uh, it slams on the ground, uh, we get uh, the, the love theme again, um, but in a very dark and somber kind of just in the low strings, um, right? So that gives us, uh, I guess, you know, Leia's uh, feelings there. Um, okay, so then uh, we get uh, le- uh, this, a shot of uh, Lando and Lobot looking at each other, and then Lando uh, looking back at Leia, and we see a long shot of Leia's kind of dejected face, and Lando kind of clearly feeling guilty about what happens as we kind of get this love theme kind of dying out, even from its kind of already sort of dead uh, version. Um, and then Vader uh, says, you know, reset the chamber for Skywalker, and then immediately Officer Chosman says, uh, Skywalker's just landed, my lord. Um, and here what we get is... Um, the theme that has been used up to this point as kind of um, you know, the sinister plotting of the Empire, you know, this, this, uh, I guess we could call it like the theme of, of plotting to, to lay a trap. Um, and as the scene continues, we get you know more shots of uh, Vader and like resetting this chamber for Skywalker and Leia being worried and being you know led away, you know, concerned about what's going to happen to Luke, um, and that the uh, kind of trap theme. Uh, is combined with the Imperial March. Okay, so again, I know it's kind of hard to imagine what I'm saying. Just if you haven't seen the scene, or if you you know, I go and watch it, and you know, see if you can pick these things out. Um, but so, to me, again, if we take the music out of this, um, it's a pretty silly scene, but. With the music, I think it's probably the most effective scene in, well, just certainly in the film. Um, again, it's a lot of people looking at each other, and, you know, whether, like, they're literally looking at each other, you can see them looking at each other, we get, like, one person, and then flashing to the other person, you know, like, face, facial, you know, full, like, full facial shot of people. Um, it's the music, and, you know, using these themes that we've uh, already heard a lot, in in the film to this point now whether you're consciously you know recognizing them on your first hearing or not like what what they're associated with i think you can feel them um and and that's really what's doing a lot of the communicating in this scene you know it's it's telling us what is contained in these looks um and that's again something we really don't see very very often in a lot of uh scoring today um, I, I would, you know, I, I think what we tend to do is even when we have things that, that are scored really well, 
and you know match the mood of a scene. They, the tendency now is to kind of just match the mood of a scene and not kind of follow these glances of characters and try and tell us what each shot means. Um, but that, that is not the approach Williams takes here. He's telling us what, what is being communicated in each shot, what each character is, is thinking and feeling in each moment uh, by you know, matching each moment and w- matching you know, what, what the director intends us us to, to understand about the characters so to me that is being drawn into a scene it's an it, you know it's still an effective scene I, i'm sure you could come up with any other you know, a million other ways of scoring this scene and i think it would still be effective just because of how well done the movie is um but the music to me is what really what draws draws me into it and kind of makes me convinced that like these characters you know are are feeling real things and that I should care about them. So yeah, I call that being taken into or drawn into a scene. Um, okay, so I want to contrast that, uh, that kind of what I, I think of as like the master class of, of film scoring uh, to, to the great Gatsby. And I'm going to call that being taken out of a scene. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but the the way that they're similar to me is that in both, I think when I watched them, even the very first time I watched them, I think it was apparent that like the music was kind of playing the leading dramatic role in some sense, um, and that's that's why I kind of link these two, even if they have the opposite effect. Uh, you know, being with Gatsby being taken out of the scene. So this is a uh, Baz Luhrmann film, um, and. It's uh, the this music's uh, executive producer uh, is apparently is officially Jay Z. Um, so this is you know nineteen no uh, nineteen sorry um, a, a twenty thirteen film, and I think it's most uh, remarkable for at least for me what, what got my attention. Um, Granted, this came out like very shortly after I read the novel too. But what mostly caught my attention uh, was the fact that uh, Lerman makes a conscious choice to use a lot of hip hop music and kind of combine hip hop with jazz, but not 1922 jazz. Very contemporary-ish, or not even contemporary. We'll say like 60s, 70s kind of jazz. Um, now the film is set film in the novel are set in the summer of 1922 um so why why use hip-hop and that's that's the first question because that plays into the scene that i'm, I'm going to talk about where we finally see gatsby for the first time um so i i always thought and i, I actually did look this up um and my what my conjecture back from you know 2013 is actually pretty much exactly what uh, Baz Luhrmann said about why he wanted so much contemporary music. Um, for him, what he felt uh, is that a contemporary audience is not going to understand uh, what the you know significance of jazz music was to people in the jazz age. So he felt like he could communicate that um, by using you know hip hop essentially. Um, that you know the kind of people who listen to hip hop and 
well now 2013 um are the people same people who would be listening to jazz in 1922 and like that's the only way that you know at least in his mind um that we can understand like what you know the kind of music the effect the music is having on these people if we have music that has a similar effect in his mind on on us as a you know general audience um right and it, to be you know if we look back to 1922 it's a very specific moment in music um where this is really the big, first year of uh louis armstrong's uh public career um a major jazz trumpet player spans multiple eras of jazz. Um, we kind of at the top of, of, of the musical world, we have uh, the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. And I actually, I believe in The Great Gatsby, the novel itself, the Paul Whiteman Orchestra is the orchestra that's implied to be playing at uh, Gatsby's party. Um, and they go on to a premiere uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue in 1924. Um Keep that in mind because, again, the, technically that is two years after The Great Gatsby is set. Uh, it's, the novel is written in 1924 uh, in the year that the Rhapsody in Blue comes out. Um, okay, so I, I respect that artistic choice um, of trying to, you know, give, you know, use music that would elicit a similar kind of response in, in his audience as jazz would have in the, in the, audience in the, the jazz age so I, I i respect that artistic choice i don't think i liked it as much back in high school when i saw the film but i can respect it a lot more now um but in the scene where uh nick our narrator finally goes to gatsby's party after being invited there um and you know he spends this whole party looking for gatsby and it's kind of confusing because there's the underscore that the film has that is just kind of a traditional like underscore, you know, music in the background. And then there's also moments where we get this hip hop stuff that isn't clearly diegetic, but it's like, it seems like it's underscore as well. And then we also get hip hop as diegetic music, music that is actually happening in the world of the film. Um, and that's what we get at the party. It's not only just playing in general, but we literally have like some of the performers performing hip hop stuff and dancing to it and singing it, whatever. Okay, so hip hop is clearly the diegetic music of this party set in summer of 1922, which makes sense given the film to this moment. Um, and we finally get the shot, you know, we turn around our, 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 our narrator Nick, you know, he's talk. Someone grabs him. He's talking to him, and we we get a shot of hit, uh, him, you know, from behind. And then he turns around and says, "Sorry for being a bad host. You know, my name is Jay Gatsby." And we get this, you know, nice long shot uh, front, you know, just staring at um, at, at at Gatsby. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and you know he's smiling, and we get uh, this is finally the moment where everyone's been talking about this guy, and nobody knows who he is. And so here's here's Gatsby, and we get the fireworks going off in the background. And in this moment, we get 
the, 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 I guess the climax of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Now, I, I will preface this by saying that um, I am a huge Gershwin fan. It's kind of, I kind of think of Gershwin as like a, almost like a guilty pleasure musically. Um, it's an odd thing to say, maybe, but he's kind of looked down on. I, I think I, I feel by a lot of the the, uh, the the classical establishment. Right? He's not really classical. He's not really jazz. Isn't you know who listens to him? It's like show show tunes before Broadway. What is Gershwin? Um, I actually think that when I started really paying attention to Gershwin towards the end of high school, that was one of those moments that kind of helped me sort of shift towards melody and like in really really starting to appreciate um, things that aren't just like strictly you know, traditionally classical. Uh, so I love listening to Gershwin. So anyway, Rhapsody in Blue technically is, yes, it is premiered by the orchestra, but I think is implied in the novel to be playing at this party, which was very popular in 1922, but this piece itself comes out two years after the novel is set. Um, but the main thing that I take away when I watch this film is that I can't help but notice this, right? Like, yes, this... We're, we've been building up to this moment, obviously, like, you know, as a film, right? And, and the narrative of the novel in the film. Um, so it's going to have weight regardless. But if we just take away the music, right, it's just a shot of smiling Leonardo DiCaprio and some fireworks in the background. And we we dwell on that for quite a, quite a while. It's not that interesting of a shot. It's the music that really makes this, like, you know, makes the moment land for us. Um and it's also, you know, it's impossible to, to not notice because here we finally get music that actually belongs, if not literally 1922, in the correct era, right? So we finally have stylistically correct music. And not only stylistically correct music, you could take any tune the Paul Whiteman Orchestra had. I, I actually looked up, uh, you know, the top 100 songs of 1922 by... Um, by LP sales, um, and I, Paul Webman Orchestra had like, you know, fifteen of a top twenty. You could have pulled up any of their any of their or, you know band tunes, and they would have been stylistically correct for nineteen twenty two. But nobody would know them. But ev- most people are going to recognize the climax of Rhapsody in Blue. So not only you know do we finally have a stylistically correct mu- mo- a moment of stylistically correct music, um, but it's music that a lot of people watching the film are going to recognize. And for me, that, that, that kind of pulls me out of the moment. It kind of creates this meta meta moment. Um, I I when I watch this, every time I watch this scene, I again I watched it last night for the first time in a while. I, I'm just I le- I'm left asking myself, and this is not a, a bad thing actually, but it again it, it just to contrast with Empire Strikes Back, where I'm drawn into the world of the characters. Here I'm drawn out of the film. I'm like, wait, why? Why here do we finally get something that is stylistically appropriate and so well known? Why not at any other point in the film? It doesn't happen ever again in the film. It doesn't happen before this in the film. Why right in this? 
particular moment. I don't think we can say it's for diegetic music um, because we've already been shown at the party that hip-hop is the diegetic music. Um, so I, I, it makes me ask a whole bunch of questions. Um, like, what is authentic in this moment? Is the use of authentic music meant with Gatsby meant to show that Gatsby is somehow more authentic than everyone else in this kind of artificial world? Or is it the opposite, right? Is everyone else living in this authentic, not literally jazz age, but effectively 2013 jazz age world and Gatsby is off in his own land, um, right? And because also you said the climax of such a well-known piece is that artificial. Like, is that Gat? Are we getting this because Gatsby is not only trying to, you know, put on a 1922 show, um, but is trying to, you know, give us like the loudest, most pompous, most over-the-top moment of, you know, 1920s music that anybody is likely to know, right? Is that, you know, again, Gatsby kind of putting on this fake show of opulence for us? Um, yeah. Is, is this moment like the most authentic moment of the film? Is it the least authentic moment of the film? Not only so, is, is not only is Gatsby most authentic or at least authentic, is the moment authentic or, or artificial? Um, yeah, so I, I just think that there's no way not, if, if as long as you know Rhapsody in Blue and have some sense of the style of 1920s music, um, there's no way that you, for, it, this is I see, there's no way you can see this scene and it's not going to leave them, well, you know, it's, it's obviously going to call a lot of attention to it. Right? And it's the music is again what makes it land. But there's no way that I think you can kind of see this and like not sort of ask yourself like, wait, why is this happening? Why is this musical choice being made right here to use the climax of Rhapsody in Blue? Why do we finally get something and never again get it? Right? Is it something particular about this moment that is like the most authentic or least authentic moment in this film? Um, so I'm at least left. You know, feeling yes, like the music is what you know. The, the sudden like impact of the music, right as, as Gatsby turns around, and says, "I'm Jay Gatsby." Yes, that makes the moment like land with appropriate weight. You know, as you've been watching this film and kind of trying to follow our our narrator, like in his desperation, you know, in confusion, who is this guy Gatsby that everybody talks about? And we've already been told that Gatsby is the only person you know our narrator doesn't hate in the world. So yes, the music does a great job with that. But I'm also, I, I don't see how you can not be drawn out of the moment at the same time and ask yourself, what, it, like, why was this artistic choice made? Uh, so that's, that's very different. Right? We have, um, you know, two scenes uh, where I think the music is, is what makes these like long shots of people, frontal shots of people land, um, makes us understand what's going on. Um, but in Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, I'm drawn into the world of the film all the more by the music. I'm drawn into the emotional states of the characters, and I'm left, you know, convinced, more convinced about what, what they're feeling. And whereas in Gatsby, I'm drawn out of the, the moment and left kind of asking myself, Good artistic questions. I think these are it's actually very interesting. You know, you could really dig into like 
authenticity in this film and in in the novel. Um, so I think these are good questions that are being raised, but I'm definitely drawn out of that, that scene instantly and left asking these questions. Then I had to kind of go back into the, the world of the film in the next scene. So yeah, two, two scenes that have always kind of stood out to me because of how the music works um, and how they kind of work. I, I hadn't thought about this until, you know, last week when I mentioned this, but how, how the music, yeah, music really makes the scenes work. If you take the music out, the scenes don't work. And there are also scenes that are really, you know, music and like long shots of just people not saying anything. Um, so two, two kind of very different uh, scenes, one drawing me into the scene, kind of one taking me out. Um, but, you know, definitely related in that way is, you know, in all the ways we've been talking about. Very cool analysis. I really enjoyed that. That was very informative to me, uh, even as uh, someone who did not think about that particular choice at all uh, prior to you talking about it. That was very good. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just... Uh... I mean, describing uh, the the like one of the earlier scenes, Irving was just smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've uh, I have like a a random. I guess Gatsby is a guilty guilty pleasure for me. I don't know. I don't think it. I don't like describing it that way because I actually think it is a great great movie. Um, but um, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's just it's fascinating because like the I, I watched the film. Probably, I think I watched it twice in a row the first time I saw it. And I saw it, um, that was like in my first spurt of, that was, yeah, that was back in like my first spurt of like enjoying film for the first time and exploring. And like, and then I come across Bass Luerman, who I actually had seen his um, uh, Romeo and Juliet in high school. <laughs> Oddly enough, I have no idea the context as to why we would watch Bass Luhrmann's R- R- Romeo and Juliet because um, it's really, really weird. Um, <laughs> uh, but I actually enjoyed the Romeo and Juliet as well, much more than my classmates who just couldn't stop laughing at the weird stuff, which I totally get. It's very strange. But um, there's something like rather impressionistic about everything he does. Like, it's like everything is like this, like just everything is just super about the raw emotion itself, no matter what gets collateralized because of it like (laughs) i think i I think i concur with that you know just watching it last night i my impression is like it's definitely a much better film than i remember it being when i watched it you know years ago i think i was just so like probably just hung up on like the on the fact that the music was just not 1920s but you know silly high school ben but (laughs) i mean i think the film is better like much better quality than i remember and i i think it's not like yeah i think impressionistic is is a a pretty good way of describing what he's going he's going after like the emotion more than the literal yeah literally everything else is a casualty like (laughs) yeah like like there's in the novel like granted it's been ages since it's been a novel too but like at the beginning right where nick goes to you know the um, apartment uh, that Tom has like set out for his his you know mistress Myrtle and a bunch of other you know girls that, that he invites up there. Because I think the novel makes, makes a much bigger deal when like Tom gets into a fight with Myrtle and slaps her when when uh, 
when she like insults Daisy, his his wife, and like that's in the film, but like it's just kind of in the background, and, and like the the. It, you know the the our our narrator is kind of just like he witnesses it, but he's like it's just like part of like one scene and he looks at and sees like all these other scenes of people, you know, like living their lives in the windows of these apartments in New York. It's 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 much less like you know major scene than it is in, in the novel, but it's it's like one impression amongst many of like life in New York. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what that is. A hundred percent. What you were talking about uh, reminded me also of the scene uh, where um, Nick, I believe, is in their downtown um, apartment. I can't remember what they call it. Um, the in um, Tom's downtown uh, apartment. And uh, I think they were just just after Rager and he's like looking out the window and he just sees like a saxophonist just just yeah, soloing. Yeah, and that's like right. I trying to remember if that's like right before, right? I think it's right after Tom like slaps Myrtle, but like we don't really see that very well. It's like it happens in the background. We're mostly focusing on like saxophone player and all these, you know, the kaleidoscope of lives outside. Yeah, you know, but that was interesting about that is that uh, the saxophonist is is jazzing. <laughs> um, it's not like uh, he's uh, he's doing some like street hip hop with his saxophone, right? Like he's like in the time, and that's like it's... well, that's a little. It's not nineteen twenty two jazz. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's jazz. Yeah, but not yeah. not quite nineteen twenty two. Nineteen. Yeah, I'll 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 set, put leave leave a put put a link, you know, in 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 this. Um, I'll give you know, send you some links of some some music that was like really popular in 1922. Um, kind of kind of fascinating to hear what what was popular in 1922. Yeah, yeah. Very awesome analysis for sure. Nine to nine crime apparently agrees. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, is that uh, pretty much it? That's all I have. Okay, uh, you want to take us out then, Ben, for the night? Sure. Well, thank you for uh, stopping by and watching or listening to us if you were watching, listening live, or thank you, you know, for listening to us, watching us if you uh, watching this in post. Um, we we always, you know, enjoy uh, hearing from you. So, you know, we also keep our discussion going during the week on our Discord. So definitely check out our Discord. Um, you can uh, get the link to our Discord server and also all the places you can uh, listen to and view our podcast. If you look on your, yeah, there we go, on, on the right at nextmediapodcast.com. So definitely join us there. Um, and, you know, if you have any thoughts on, on what we did well, what we, what we can improve on, definitely make sure you leave comments on whatever ratings on whatever, um, you know, platform you're watching or listening to us on so yeah that's that's uh that's it for tonight definitely a lot of great stuff check out the other episodes we uh on on this week's uh mixed media uh we had um arguing with reddit from nathan and an interview with uh one of irving's ariella productions uh interns talking about um 
3D modeling and video games, so video game design. Uh, so definitely check those out as well. Yeah, I think yeah, that's about it. Mm-hmm. One last thing, a uh, shout out to 909 Crime and uh, Rob Sharma for supporting us at mixedmedia.locals.com. And you can join them by going to mixedmedia.locals.com. And for five bucks a month, there's a bunch of uh, uh, perks that you can uh, check out there that uh, you can enjoy. All right. Well, once again, thank you for joining us, uh, tuning in live or watching, listening to us once this episode is released. Have a good night to everyone watching us. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching. Bye. But I'm moving in. I bet I show it into a dim. How you hate and then lose again? How you hating my vibes? Why you wasting my time? Getting hype on my line. Tell a man I don't want feedback. I just want relax. Brand new whip, two tone. I need that brand new hit. You know, like lean back, brand new bits. I live in we back, man. You never gonna lie.